Assalamu alaikum and Ramadan Mubarak. Welcome back to Season 5 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 519, Lloyd George and the Middle East. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. In June 1916, two major events changed the course of the war. First, Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener, the British War Secretary, died at sea. And second, Sharif Hussein, the Ottoman ruler of Mecca, launched his Arab revolt. The response to the Arab revolt was anticlimactic as few Arabs actually revolted. Most of the world was focused on events in Europe and ignored the Middle East. The casualties in Europe had reached historical levels with no end in sight. And with that, let's begin our discussion of David Lloyd George. World War I Casualties Apart from World War II, World War I was the deadliest war in human history. The number of deaths resulting from combat in World War I is staggering. The Ottoman Empire had about 325,000 combat deaths. The British Empire suffered just under a million with 908,000. The French, 1,357,000. Germany and Russia both around 1,700,000 each. Taken altogether, there were over 8,500,000 combat deaths in World War I. This does not take into account civilian deaths. There are many reasons for the high death toll. Incompetent leadership, overconfident leadership, inflexible leadership. But most historians suggest the real reason for the high casualty rate was the use of outdated military thinking in an age of modern weapons. And much of this outdated military thinking can be linked back to one man, Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon's military accomplishments in the early 19th century were undoubtedly amazing. They were so impressive, his strategies were often adopted without taking into consideration the advancements of military technologies. A primary example can be seen in the American Civil War. Napoleon's influence could still be seen in this great war nearly four decades after his death. Most of the generals on both sides of the conflict studied Napoleon's strategies and tactics in military school. These strategies emphasized cavalry charges, constant drilling, and elaborate infantry formations. Napoleon's battles often opened with heavy cannon fire on the enemy, followed by overwhelming musket volleys and cavalry charges. However, by the time of the American Civil War, technology had moved on. The telegraph allowed generals to make battlefield decisions from hundreds of miles away. Railroads allowed hundreds and even thousands of soldiers to mobilize in a short period of time. And rifling technology allowed for more accurate and deadlier shooting. 
even the role of cavalry had changed. Horses were still needed for transportation and labor, but the days of large-scale charges were over and cavalry was relegated to reconnaissance and skirmishing. The consequence of these technological advancements was the deadliest war in American history and nearly 700,000 casualties. The Franco-Prussian War of 1870 between the German Federation and France was another reminder of the futility of Napoleonic tactics. With nearly 900,000 casualties, military strategists finally began to leave Napoleon's outdated playbook behind. In the 45 years between the end of the Franco-Prussian War and the beginning of World War I, technology advanced by leaps and bounds. The Industrial Revolution introduced motorized vehicles, airplanes, and telephones. And while these advancements improved transportation and communication, they also led to more deadly and powerful weapons. Aerial technology allowed fighter pilots to wage dogfights in the air, while silent submarines lurked beneath the seas bringing death to unsuspecting vessels. But the two most important military advancements that impacted World War I took place on dry land. These were the machine gun and artillery. The Gatling gun, developed in 1861, was the first true machine gun to see widespread usage. By the time World War I began in 1914, machine gun technology had advanced significantly. Machine guns were now lighter and only needed a few men to operate them. A well-placed machine gun nest operated by two men could wipe out opposing forces of much larger numbers. Artillery technology had also seen major advancements. The use of artillery in military engagements goes back centuries even to the days of the early Ottoman Empire. The Sultan Mehmed II used giant cannons known as bombards to tear through the walls of Constantinople. By Napoleon's time, cannons were no longer being used simply as siege weapons. They were critically important to on-field battle tactics and a vital part of any respectable military. And while cannons grew more powerful and more sophisticated over the decades, they still suffered from one major problem. When fired, the cannon's recoil would alter its aim and positioning. In between shots, crews had to spend valuable time readjusting the cannon and getting it back into position. The development of artillery brakes along with more powerful ammunition allowed modern armies to lay down heavy, accurate, and consistent fire on the battlefield. At the start of World War I, many military commanders were still using the old tactics of encirclement and outflanking their opponent. But how does one encircle an opponent that can fire shells up to five miles away? They also believed in the glory of massive infantry charges into enemy ranks. But what glory is there in a charge that can be nullified by two men with a machine gun? It would take many years and hundreds of thousands of deaths for the nations of World War I to realize this was a new war.
a new war fought with new weapons and requiring new tactics and strategies. I think one really clear way of understanding the shift in World War I in terms of technology is that soldiers rode in on horses and they left in airplanes. At the beginning of World War I, warfare is almost in the 19th century style. The French sincerely believe that going at the troops with determination at enemy troops is the way to go. What they don't understand is the collision of technologies. The Turning Point It is difficult to determine the turning point in World War I. But one of the most pivotal events was the Battle of the Somme in mid to late 1916. But before the Battle of the Somme, there was the Battle of Verdun. And to understand the Battle of Verdun, we must provide some background. By the spring of 1916, Germany occupied most of Belgium and a good part of France. And both sides were stuck in a stalemate along 400 miles of trenches in eastern France. And though the Germans were outnumbered, they had constructed excellent defensive networks along those 400 miles of trenches. These provided a decent counterbalance to the Allies' greater numbers. However, the Germans did not get into this war expecting a stalemate. Their initial plan was to invade France, quickly knock them out of the war, and then negotiate a settlement with Britain. But obviously, that did not happen. And now, finding themselves in an intractable stalemate, the Germans changed plans which led to the Battle of Verdun. In February 1916, Germany attacked the French town of verdun sur moise in eastern France. They planned to capture the hills of Verdun, giving their artillery a superior advantage against the French infantry. Germany could then use this advantage to inflict severe damage on the French who would then have to call in their reserve forces. Germany could then grind them down in a grueling war of attrition. But once again, things did not quite go as planned. At first, everything went well for Germany. They captured the hills of Verdun and the French brought in their reserves. However, the French defenses held up much better than the Germans expected. Germans got the war of attrition they wanted, but they were the ones being ground down. The Entente powers had also been working on a plan to break the stalemates. Before the offensive at Verdun, the Allies had planned a coordinated attack against the Germans. The French were to lead a combined offensive with the British in the West. Russia would strike Germany from the east while Italy attacked from the southwest. But their plans changed with the German offensive at Verdun in February. With the French tied down at Verdun, the British had to carry the brunt of the western offensive. The British began the coordinated offensive on July 1, 1916 near the River Somme in northern France. The British offensive began with two weeks of heavy bombardment of the German lines. This was intended to knock out the barbed wire pits and destroy entrenched German defenses. From there, thousands of Allied soldiers were to sweep in and mop up the remaining Germans. Once again, things did not go as planned. The Germans, who had discovered the Allied plans, fortified their defenses and tunneled deeper underground. 
On top of that, the weak British artillery pieces did little damage to the German defenses. The British did not know that most of the barbed wire pits meant to halt infantry charges were still intact. Thousands of newly recruited, inexperienced, and poorly trained British soldiers charged into no man's land heading for the German trenches. As they ran across the open field, many of them got entangled in the barbed wire pits. Meanwhile, with the shelling finished, the Germans came out of their bunkers. They took up their positions in their machine gun nests and mowed down the British soldiers. The British suffered 57,000 casualties on the first day of the Somme Offensive alone. It remains the largest single-day loss of life in British history. Over the next three months, the British and French gained about 10 miles of territory against the Germans. But these 10 miles came at a stupendously high cost. The British lost 430,000 men. The French lost 200,000 men. And the Germans lost 450,000 men. David Lloyd George This Pyrrhic victory frustrated the British people and their politicians. One of these angry politicians was David Lloyd George, the British Secretary of War. Lloyd George replaced Herbert Horatio Kitchener as Secretary of War after his death in July 1916. He was completely dissatisfied with British Prime Minister Henry Asquith's handling of the war. And he was not alone. As the war dragged on, the British press also became fed up with the Prime Minister and blasted him and his government in the papers. They labeled him wavering and indecisive. They ridiculed his large war cabinet and their ridiculous long meetings that accomplished nothing. They accused him of interfering with the generals and the soldiers in the field. Using this political atmosphere to his advantage, Lloyd George created an alliance with Asquith's political opponents. And on December 7, 1916, Lloyd George became the new Prime Minister of Great Britain. Lloyd George brought a new approach to the war. Unlike his predecessors, Asquith and Kitchener, Lloyd George believed that the Middle East was critical to winning the war. He believed the Ottoman military was weak and their victories at Gallipoli and Kutalamada were aberrations. And he was also an early believer in Zionism. Lloyd George had a deeply religious Christian upbringing. He developed a soft spot for Europe's oppressed Jews and believed Palestine was truly their divinely he developed a soft spot for Europe's oppressed Jews and believed Palestine was their divinely promised homeland. Before getting into politics, he had served as legal representative for Theodore Herzl, the founder of the Zionist movement. Lloyd George intended to take Jerusalem from the Ottoman Empire and fulfill the Zionist objective. He planned to create a semi-autonomous Jewish state under British protection. Toast his health and long life to the right honorable Lord God. 
It is, as your German has reminded you, it is nearly 16 years since he recruited me to the Zionist movement. <laughs> the fertilizing spree pouring steadily into Palestine of energy, wealth, zeal, intelligence, brain, laving the thirsty land and vitalizing its withered strength. Barren and malarial swamps have been converted into a happy settlement. Science has been harnessed to waters which had been running wild and waste since the early days of creation. He had similar aims for the Arab subjects of the Ottoman Empire. Though he publicly expressed his desire to give the Arabs independence, Lloyd George was an imperialist. Just like Mark Sykes, he did not intend to create truly independent Arab states. Unlike Mark Sykes, he did not mind cutting the French out of the deal. Lloyd George also had a deep hatred for both the Germans and the Turks. In his memoirs, he plainly stated the Allied war goals. Quote, the liberation of the peoples who now lie beneath the murderous tyranny of the Turks and the expulsion from Europe of the Ottoman Empire, which has proved itself so radically alien to Western civilization. Unquote. With all these factors at play, it comes as no surprise that Lloyd George made the capture of Jerusalem a primary war aim. And now that the Middle East was arguably the most important theater of the war, things began to move much faster there. The War in Sinai With Lloyd George in charge, the British Egypt Expeditionary Force in Cairo began to see a lot more activity. The Ottomans had first attacked the British possessions at the Suez Canal in February 1915. Refer to episode 7 of this series for more details. That initial attack failed and the Ottomans were forced to withdraw. Since then, the Ottomans had created a defensive line 90 miles away that ran roughly parallel to the canal. The top of this defensive line was at the town of Arish in northern Sinai along the Mediterranean coast. The bottom of the defensive line was at Nechol in central Sinai. The Ottomans also had fallback positions deeper in Palestine at Gaza and Beersheba. From these outposts, they carried out minor raids against the British in Sinai. To protect against these raids, the British decided to gradually extend their defensive lines well beyond the canal zone. By late 1915, the British defenses stretched 25 miles into Sinai. A network of rail lines and water pumps connected these new defensive fortifications in Sinai to their fortress at the Suez. The construction of these fortifications and their accompanying infrastructure had a twofold purpose. 
Not only were the British preparing to attack the Ottomans, but they were also cutting off their access to water. With limited access to water, the Ottoman troops in Sinai grew desperate and launched even more raids against the British. And these raids just convinced the British to extend their defenses even deeper into Sinai. In late 1916, the British destroyed all the remaining water stations and wells in Sinai. With 60 miles of open desert between them, the Ottomans could no longer venture out beyond their defenses at Arish on the Mediterranean coast. With the Ottomans holed up at Arish, the British were free to consolidate their hold on the peninsula. They continued to push deeper into Sinai, building the necessary support infrastructure as they went. And all the Ottomans could do was watch and wait. Finally, on December 23, 1916, the British were ready to attack the Ottomans at Arish. British forces numbered 6,000 men compared to the Ottomans' 2,000. British warships in the Mediterranean shelled the Ottomans at Arish while British warplanes dropped bombs from the sky. Outnumbered and overwhelmed, the Ottoman forces surrendered within a day. 300 Ottoman soldiers were killed in combat and 1,200 were taken prisoner. The British took over Adish and now had a base in Sinai on the Mediterranean coast. They planned to use Adish as a springboard into Palestine and the Ottoman fortress in Gaza less than 30 miles away. The British spent the next few weeks clearing out the remaining Ottoman forces and by February 1917, they controlled the entire Sinai Peninsula. You know, when we think about World War I, we think about the Western Front and the trenches and the British and the French and the Germans. Uh, but really, the Ottoman Empire suffered far more than any of the continental powers. About 9% of the uh, German population died. About 11% of the French population died. But anywhere from between 14% and 25% of the Ottoman population died. The War in Mesopotamia The British also made significant advances in Iraq. Previously, British India had insisted on managing the war effort in Mesopotamia. But after the debacle at the Siege of Kut, Lloyd George decided to take a more direct role from London. He replaced the top military brass in Mesopotamia and brought in thousands of additional Indian troops. This new leadership constructed military infrastructure in the marshy regions of the Tigris River, which improved transportation and logistics. This also allowed medical supplies to be brought into the area, helping to reduce sicknesses and disease. While the British in Sinai were fighting the Ottomans at Arish, the British in Mesopotamia were preparing to move on Baghdad. By December 1916, there were over 150,000 British and Indian soldiers in Mesopotamia outnumbering the Ottomans on their own home turf. The Ottoman officers' desperate calls to Istanbul for reinforcements went unheeded. And just like in Sinai, the Ottomans in Mesopotamia could only watch and wait as the British pushed slowly yet relentlessly towards them. The British purposely moved slowly up the Tigris to minimize casualties and shore up their defenses as they went. But eventually, they were in position to attack the Ottomans. 
The first engagement of this offensive happened at the fortress of Cotalamara, where the British had been humiliated the previous year. On February 19, 1917, the British attacked the fortress, meeting surprisingly stiff resistance from the Ottomans. Though outnumbered, the Ottoman troops at Kutalamara held out for nearly a week. But by February 24th, they had to retreat further up the Tigris River. After capturing the fortress at Kut, the British resumed their push towards Baghdad, which was 95 miles north. Ottoman general Khalil Pasha, who had acted so boldly during the siege of Kut, was unsure how to defend Baghdad. Baghdad, then and now, was a large city sliced nearly in half by the Tigris River with suburbs tumbling in all directions. Canals, irrigation channels, and levees spread out from the Tigris like veins carrying water to millions of people. Defending the city was almost as difficult as invading it. The Ottomans were outnumbered two to one. And though Istanbul had finally dispatched 20,000 troops from Persia, they were unlikely to arrive before the British. General Khalil Pasha could have broken the dams, flooding the region and thereby buying himself some time. Historians would later wonder why he did not do so. Instead, he set up his defenses on both sides of the Tigris River just south of the city. Then he ordered a third defensive unit to the Diyala River, a tributary of the Tigris southwest of Baghdad. This forced the British to hesitate as they neared the Diyala River, not wanting to get pinned down by the Ottoman defenders. Several British troops moved north up the Diyala River, then through the eastern suburbs of Baghdad, looking for an easier crossing. Already outnumbered, General Khalil Pasha sent two of his three defensive units after the British troops in the eastern suburbs. With only one defensive unit to defend the southern crossings, the Ottomans did not stand a chance against the British. The Ottomans were quickly overrun, and Khalil Pasha's defenses broke down from there. He withdrew his forces further north and deeper into the city, intending to set up another defensive line. But by the next day, Khalil Pasha had lost his nerve and ordered a full retreat from the city. The British entered Baghdad on March 11, 1917 and occupied the city without a fight. There were still 10,000 Ottoman troops garrisoned just north of Baghdad with 20,000 more on the way. 100 miles north of Baghdad was the city of Samarra, which briefly served as the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate. Samarra also had a train station and a rail line. So long as the Ottomans had Samarra, they could continue to bring troops into Mesopotamia and attempt to recapture Baghdad. To prevent this, the British decided to take Samarra as well. And to do that, they had to fight the thousands of Ottoman soldiers between Baghdad and Samarra. This began a brutal, bloody, six-week campaign known as the Samarra Offensive. By April 23, 1917, the Ottomans had abandoned Samarra and retreated further north to Mosul. But the British paid a heavy price for this victory. Throughout the six weeks of the Samarra offensive, the Ottomans lost 15,000 men defending the region. Meanwhile, the British lost 18,000 men in combat and another 30,000 to sickness. 
The irony is that Baghdad did not hold any strategic value for the British and its capture brought them no immediate benefit. Satisfied with their gains, the British halted their push into Mesopotamia and consolidated their position. Despite its irrelevance, the British victories in Mesopotamia were celebrated in London. Lloyd George was especially pleased with the capture of this ancient Islamic city. This victory inspired the British people with confidence in their new leader and convinced the British Prime Minister he would inevitably win the war. Final Analysis The situation was looking grim for the Central Powers. The Germans had gambled heavily on Verdun and lost. Lloyd George's leadership had breathed new life into the British and renewed interest in the Middle East. The Ottoman Empire was falling apart at the seams. The Ottomans and the Austrians depended on the Germans who were heavily outnumbered. Despite German technical wizardry and military efficiency, they could not match the global empires of Britain and France. The Germans still had one more chance to bring the war to a quick and favorable end. But it was another dangerous gamble likely to incur the wrath of the sleeping giant across the Atlantic. In the next episode, we'll look at the events that brought the United States into the war. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or, to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfi Kasiroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast Exclusive, the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And I uh, also got to say, Ramadan Mubarak. I hope your Ramadan is going well. We're about halfway through it at the recording of this episode. So, inshallah, we will all, I hope we all gain the blessings of Ramadan. Amin. So, we are continuing our story on. <clears throat> 
Uh, sorry about that. Um, don't really have, can't really drink water right about now. So uh, forgive me if my if I cough a little bit here and there. But we are we are going to continue our story on the brief caliphate, if we can call it that, of Ibn Zubair. Uh, mostly the the struggle of Ibn Zubair versus the Umayyads. So let's begin with a quick recap of the last episode. And much of the last ap- episode was actually a recap of the past, of the first two seasons. Uh, well, actually season two and season three of the Islamic History Podcast. Within the last episode, that is, we discussed the events from the death of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, to the death of his grandson, Hussein ibn Ali, radiallahu anhum. And then we also discussed in the previous episode, we also discussed the Battle of Al-Harara, the Battle of Al-Harara, let me get that pronunciation correct, as well as the pillaging of Medina by the Syrian soldiers sent by Yazid ibn Muawiyah. And this Syrian army was led by Yazid ibn Muawiyah's general named Muslim ibn Uqba. So now that Medina has been pacified and the Umayyads have reasserted their control over Medina, they are now headed on to Mecca to deal with Ibn Zubair, who has been hiding out in Mecca pretty much since the beginning of Yazid's caliphate. Yazid Yazid ibn Muawiyah has tried to exert his authority over the Hejaz, which includes, of course, Mecca and Medina. He now has Medina, but Ibn Zubair, even though he has not publicly rebelled against Yazid, he has also not taken Bayah. He has not given him the pledge. And Ibn Zubair is also claiming to seek refuge at the Kaaba. In reality, Ibn Zubair is really trying to figure out what he's going to do. He has not Maybe there is a maybe he does have a plan. It doesn't seem as if he really has a plan, quite frankly, in reading this. But maybe he has a plan that he's just not sharing with people. But at this stage, he knows he doesn't want to give Bayah to uh, to Yazid ibn Muawiyah. But it doesn't seem as if he's quite ready to come out against the Umayyads and and actually begin to fight or or struggle for the caliphate. But now he's going to have to make a decision. His his um, reluctance to accept the bayah from the people of Medina allowed the people of Medina to choose someone else. We mentioned how they had chose a Sahaba in the previous episode. They had chose one of the Sahabas who was also a son of a Sahaba. Who was his? This Sahaba was also the son of a martyr. That was Abdullah ibn Hanzalah. Uh, Ibn Hanzala, he was the Medina's, the people of Medina chose him as their leader when Ibn Zubair refused to accept the bayah. And we can't say that that resulted in the defeat of the army of Medina or the people of Medina, because quite frankly, the Syrians, the Syrian army was really just a better army all in all. But still, that lack of unity, I think, kind of hurt Ibn Zubair. You're going to see this as, as a theme throughout Ibn Zubair's um, caliphate, this this um, lack, this indecision, this inability to make a firm, concrete decision and move forward with it. So, and um, while I'm really going into depth right now in this series, I have studied Ibn Zubair's um, 
caliphate in the past and it seems as if indecision and his ability to to move forward with resolution on the matter hurt him in many ways and we'll see how that plays out in this episode